Welcome to My Favorite Theorem. I'm your host, Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Evelyn Lamb, a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome home. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I just got back from Paris a week ago, um, and I'm almost back on Utah time. So right now I'm waking up very early, but, but not three in the morning, more like five or six. Well, so. well wait, wait till you're my age and then you'll just wake up early in the morning because you're my age. Yeah. But. I was talking to my grandma the other day and <laughs> saying how I was getting up early and she was like, oh, I woke up at four this morning. That's when I woke up. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not cool. And, and <laughs> I, I don't think I'm as old as your grandmother, but I doubt it. <laughs> but I'll just tell you winter is coming. Let me put it that way. <laughs> okay. So uh, we're pleased today to welcome uh, Mohammed Omar. Mohammed, why don't you tell everyone about yourself a little bit? Great to be on the podcast. Uh, so my name is Dr. Mohammed Omar. I'm a professor at Harvey Mudd College. Uh, my area of specialty is algebra and combinatorics, and I like pure and applied flavors of that. So theoretical work, but also seeing it come to light um, in a lot of different sciences and computer science. I especially yeah. like working. Yeah, um, I especially like working with students. Um, so they're really involved with the work that I do. And I just generally like to be playful with math, you know, have a fun time and do things like this podcast. Cool. Well, yeah. that, that, that's what we aim for. Mm -hmm. And I guess uh, combinatorics probably lends itself to a lot of fun kind of games to play. It always seems like it. Yeah. You know, the thing I really like about it is that you can see it come to life in a lot of games and a lot of um, hobbies can sort of motivate the work that comes up in it. But at the same time, you can see it as a lens for learning a lot of more uh, advanced math, uh, such as like abstract algebra. And so it's sort of as a gateway to subjects like that. So I love this diversity in, in that respect. Which is yeah. yeah. I always thought combinatorics was hard. I mean, you know, I, I, thought, I thought I knew how to count until I started to try to learn combinatorics. I was like, wait a minute, I can't count anything, you know? <laughs> It's difficult when you have to deal with distinguishability and indistinguishability and mixing them, and then you just sort of get confused. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Hey, what's it like to work at Harvey Mudd? That always seemed like a really interesting place to be. Harvey Mudd's great. I think the aspects that I like about it a lot are that the students just are intrinsically interested and motivated in math and science, and they're really excited about it. Yeah. And so it really feels, yeah, so it really feels like you're at sort of a, a, a place where people are just having a lot of fun with a lot of the tools that they learn. And so when you're teaching there, it's sort of a really interactive, fun experience with the students. Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of like active learning that goes on because the students are so interested in um, these things. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun. Very cool. So, yeah. Yeah, so, Mohammed, what's your favorite theorem? So, first of all, my favorite theorem is a lemma. Okay. <laughs> uh, actually a theorem, um, but uh, usually referred to as a lemma. And, well, you know, you... Lemma's where all the work is, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, it's funny you mentioned combinatorics, because this happens to be something in combinatorics. Um, uh, it was called Burnside's lemma. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so I love Burnside's lemma a lot, and maybe I'll just give a little bit of an idea of what it is and give you an idea in the light of what you mentioned, which is that combinatorics can be quite hard. 
So I'll start <laughs> with a problem that's hard, a combinatorial one that's hard. So imagine you have a cube, right? Mm -hmm. So cube has six faces, mm -hmm. right? And say you ask the naive question, how many ways are there to paint the faces of a cube um, with colors red, green, and blue? Right. Okay. So you think, okay, well, there's six faces and, you know, the top face is either red or green or blue. And for every choice of color I use there, the, another face is red or green or blue, etc. So the number of coloring should be three times three times three times three times three times three. Three to the sixth, right? Right. Um, but then, you know, you can put a little bit of a twist on this, right? And you can say, well, how many ways are there to do this um, if you consider two colorings to be the same, if you take the cube and rotate it, uh, to take one coloring, rotate the cube and get another coloring. Right. So if, if you, if you had the, the red face on the left side, it could be on the top and that would be the same. Yeah. If they exactly. were all, okay. Yeah, exactly. So one naive way to think about, or one naive sort of approach that people tend to think works when they first are faced with this is they think, okay, well, there are these six faces, so maybe I can permute things in six ways, so I divide the total number by six, right? Wrong. Um, <laughs> exactly. You know, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, one is just sort of like a empirical reason. So you said the answer was three to the sixth for not caring about symmetry. If you divide that by six, there's a little bit of a problem, mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that could be. And you can kind of see, so if you look at a painting where all the faces are red, no matter how you rotate that, you're going to end up with the same coloring, right? But as you mentioned, if you color one face red and the rest green, for instance, then you get six different um, colorings when you rotate this cube around. So you got to do something a little bit different. And Burnside's Lemma essentially gives you a nice, quick way to approach this by looking at something that's completely different but easy to calculate. And so this is sort of why I love it a lot. Um, mm -hmm. it's, really, it's a really, really cool theorem that you can explain sort of at, at a maybe like discrete math kind of level if you're teaching it at a university. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So the actual statement, let's see if I can remember this. It's something like um, the number of coloring, colorings would be something like uh, one over the order of the group of rotations times the sum of, what is it, the, the number of elements in each orbit or something like that? I used to know this pretty well and I've forgotten it now. Yeah, so something like that. So a way to think about it is, so you have your object and it has a bunch of symmetries. So um, if you took a square and you were coloring, say, the edges, mm -hmm. right, which are sort of, and that, like a, it's an analogous situation to bases with the cube. Mm -hmm. a, cube a square has eight symmetries. So there are the four rotations, but then mm -hmm. you can also flip along um, axes that go through opposite edges mm -hmm. and then ones that go through opposite um, vertices. Right. So um, what Burnside's lemma says is something like this. If you want to know the number of ways to um, color up to this rotational symmetry, you can look at every single one of these 
symmetries that you have, and the square is 8, and the cube, it turns out to be 24. Right. Um, and for every single symmetry, you ask yourself, how many ways are there to color the object with the three colors you have, where the coloring does not change under that symmetry? Right. Okay. Okay. The number of things fixed, essentially, right? Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The number of things fixed by the symmetry. So, um, like I mentioned, the cube has 24 symmetries. Mm -hmm. So, let's take an example of one. Let's say you put a rod through the center of two opposite faces of a cube. Right. And you rotate 90 degrees along that. So, you're sort of thinking about the top face and the bottom face mm -hmm. and just rotating 90 degrees. Right? So, let's think about the colorings that would be fixed, unchanged under that symmetry. So you're free to choose whatever you would like for the top and bottom face, mm -hmm. right? but all the side faces will have to have the same color. Yes. Right? Because as soon as you rotate one face 90 degrees, you get another face. That Whatever was in that face is now rotated 90 degrees as well. Mm -hmm. So the number, if you count the number of colorings fixed by that rotation through the rod, um, uh, about the rod through the opposite faces, you get something like, well, you have three choices for those side faces. Mm -hmm. As soon as you choose the color for one, you're forced to choose the same color for the rest. And then you have freedom in your top and bottom faces. Right. So that's just one of the symmetries. Now, if you did that for every single symmetry and took the average of them, turns out to be the number of ways to color the faces of the cube up to rotational symmetry in general. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of weird. Like, it's there's sort of two things that are going on. One is why in the world would looking at the symmetries that are and counting the number of colorings fixed under a symmetry have anything to do with the number of colorings in total um, up, to, up to symmetry in general? It's, it's not clear what the relationship there is at first hand. But the real cool part is that you know, if you take every single symmetry and count the number of colorings, that's sort of a systematic thing you can do without having to think too hard. Mm -hmm. So it's a nice formula in that you can get at um, the answer quite quickly, even though it seems like a complicated thing that you're doing. Yeah, so I guess, you know, that naive way we were talking about to approach this where you just say, well, I have three choices for this one, three choices for that one. You almost kind of look at it from the opposite side. You say, well, instead of Think about how I'm painting things. I'm going to think about how I'm turning things, exactly. and, and then look at it at a case by case basis, base rather um, rather than um, looking at the individual faces. Maybe exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I mean, when I first saw this, I saw it as an undergrad, um, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this was my initial reaction. It was sort of it was a cool way to make some of this abstract math that we were learning really come to life. And I could see sort of um, what was happening in the mathematics physically. And that sort of gave me a lot of intuition for a lot of the later things we were learning um, related to that theorem. So it was really, really cool. Yeah, so was that in a combinatorics class or a discrete math class? Yeah, it was actually in a standalone combinatorics class that I learned this. And now the reason, another reason I really like this lemma is, so I teach it in a discrete math course that I teach at Harvey Mudd, but then I revisit it 
in an abstract algebra course mm -hmm. um, because really you can prove this theorem using a theorem in abstract algebra called the orbit stabilizer theorem. So orbits are sort of all of these different, um, you take one color ring, spinning around in all the possible ways, you get a whole bunch of different ones. And stabilizers, you can think of as fixing, taking one symmetry and asking what color rings are fixed under that symmetry. So that's sort of, in our example, what those two things are. Um, so in abstract algebra, there's this orbit stabilizer theorem that has to do with more general objects groups, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things that I really like about this theorem is sort of assess the stage for even more um, advanced math like representation theory. I feel like a lot of the introductory concepts in a representation theory course really come back to these ideas that you play with in Burnside's Lemma. So it's yeah, it's really cool in this versatility like that. Yeah, that, that's the context I know it in. So I, I, I've taught, I haven't taught group theory in Oh, 10 years or so, but, but we, we, it was in that course. And now I'm remembering all of this is coming back. This is good. I'm glad we're having this conversation uh, because I, I'm with you. I think this is a really remarkable theorem. And, and, and I always, but I, did, I never took a combinatorics course uh, that was deep enough where we got this far. So, oh, yeah. uh, so you know, I only know it from the, the group acting on sets point of view, which is how you, how you prove this thing, right? Um, and as you say, it definitely leads to representation theory because you can sort of build representations of your groups out of You just take a basis uh, for a vector space and let it act this way. And, and a lot of those character formulas, I think, really sort of drop out of this, right? This, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. So it sounds like you did not have a hard time choosing your favorite theorem. Like this was really, you know, you sound very excited about this theorem. You know, I was, the way I tried to think about what my favorite theorem was, was sort of what theorem do I constantly revisit in multiple different courses? Mm -hmm. If I do that, then I must like it, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I thought like, hey, Burnside's Lemma is one that I teach in multiple courses because I like all the different perspectives that you can view it from. And then I had this, th this thought, I was like, well, is Burnside's Lemma really a theorem? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, it, I felt justified in the following, for sort of the following reason, which was, I think this lemma is actually due to Frobenius, not Burnside. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, since the Burnside part is not really due to Burnside, then maybe the lemma part really be a theorem. <laughs> yeah, I must say, I... Burnside sounds like it should be a civil war general or something. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. So what have you chosen to pair with your theorem? Ah, so I thought that a uh, chessboard marble cake would be perfect. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. So first of all, um, I had a slice of one just about a few hours ago. Mm. <laughs> Um, it was my uh, brother's birthday recently, and mm -hmm. in family there was leftover cake, and I indulged. Um, but then I thought, yeah, I mean, one of the uh, typical prototypical problems in playing around with Burnside's lemma is how many ways are there to color the cells of a chessboard mm -hmm. um, up to rotational symmetry? And so when I was eating the cake, I thought, hey, this is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How, how big of a chessboard was it? Eight by eight. Really? 
That's yeah, it was an eight by eight chessboard cake. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it was it was a big cake. I had a big piece. <laughs> okay. Wait, so when yeah. you when you sliced into it, it was eight by eight that way, or eight by eight across the top as you were looking at it? Uh, across the top. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, was sort of, I was sort of imagining these. So my, my sister in law is a pastry chef, and she she sometimes can make these remarkably intricate looking things in there. Uh, it's oh, usually it's usually more wow. like a more like a three by three is the standard if you go vertical. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. I got gotcha. you. Very cool. Okay, I've I've never tried to make a chessboard cake. I I like to bake a lot, but anything that involves me being like fussy about how something looks is just not for me. Yeah, in, in baking, eating, I'm happy with. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. I'm I really enjoy cooking a lot, um, but I enjoy sort of the the cooking and the eating, not the design. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you. Definitely. Cool. Well, this has been fun. Thanks for joining us, Mohammed. Yeah, yeah. thank you. This has been really enjoyable. Yeah, great. So, uh, take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Moore. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Nguyen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpkinnison.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at nivicnazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards, followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at My Favorite Theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.